Good evening. As we read this passage, uh, then Ed teaches from it. Let's pray that the Lord will speak to us deeply and personally through the words. So we're reading from John, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And you'll find that on page 1064 in the Church Bibles. John, chapter 2, and page 1064. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks for Well, let's pray. Um, Lord Jesus, we come to your word. We thank you for your spirit that applies truth to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that... Uh, I'd be forgotten and you'd be remembered. I pray, Lord, that we would not listen to a person, but, Lord, we would behold you. Uh, Lord, we long to see your goodness, and I pray, Lord, that you would do that for us tonight so that we might yeah, cling on, Lord, uh, and keep going until we win that day when we're with you in heaven in victory, Lord. Amen. A question to start you with is, what makes you think that Jesus is a bit stingy? Have you got something that makes you think that Jesus is a bit stingy? Have you got anything? Anything that you do or you experience where you think, do you know what, Jesus, he's just not, he's not delivering. It's not really that great. Have you got something? My guess is, is that as you consider your life, there will be something that will make you think, I'm not sure that Jesus is really that into me. I'm not sure really that he cares just quite that much. I'm not sure that he really wants me to have, you know, whatever it is that I'm longing for, whether it's glory in sport or, you know, whether it's a relationship or whether it's just good health, the ability to sing, maybe, I don't know what it is. What, what makes you think Jesus is stingy or mean? I think that is probably one of the things that our culture does a lot of. It makes us feel that Jesus is stingy or mean. I know that because in Genesis 3, which I preached on recently, one of the uh, snake's lines of attack is to doubt God's goodness. 
He doubts God's word. Did God really say? He doubts God's judgment. You surely won't die if you eat the fruit. And he doubts God's goodness. God just doesn't want you to be like him. I think it's something that we struggle with. And this passage, I think, is brilliant for helping us see the goodness of the Lord. Uh, it's a bit like this. Okay, who, does anyone recognise... Uh, you've just been to Peru, haven't you? But does anyone recognise where this is? I should have put it on the PowerPoint and I forgot. Look at that. Isn't that a little lovely? Look at the sort of deep blue pool and the rocks and the... What? It's not. It's Plymouth. That is Plymouth. There's Plymouth there, right? And the whole point of this photograph is it's to make you want to go to Plymouth. And weirdly, I never thought about going to Plymouth. But as I look at this picture, I'm thinking, we should go there. It looks great, doesn't it? That's the whole purpose of those kind of brochures and those pictures that you get, don't they? They reveal the glory of Plymouth and they, they make us believe that it's a great place to go on holiday. Listen, that is just like the sign that Jesus does here. The sign here is so that we see the glory of Jesus and it would make us just love him and want to be with him forever because he's brilliant. That's the purpose of this. You can, you can see that in verse 11. I love it when the Bible tells you exactly what's going on. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed what? His glory. And what happened? His disciples believed in him. You see that? So in these signs, uh, there are a whole lot of signs in John's Gospel, we're meant to see Jesus' glory and believe in him and his glory more. So this is my mum's favourite Bible story. Uh, she always reminds me it's the first miracle Jesus does uh, and, uh, and it's done in obedience to his mother. That's why she likes this miracle. <laughs> do what your mum says is the take home apparently. That, listen, that's good to do. You should do what your mum says and you should honour your mum, even though that's hard to do sometimes, guys. I get that. But that's not the purpose here, is it? The purpose here is to show Jesus' glory and it's revealed so that people might believe. So let's answer some questions together. First of all, what is there not enough of uh, in, this, in this chapter? You see in verse 3, we're at a wedding I love that Jesus and his disciples have been invited to the wedding. They've only been hanging out together for maybe, what are we on? We're on the third day. This is about three days since they've been called. They're already a bit of a unit. I like that. Rent a crowd. They've turned up at the party. What are we lacking? When the wine was gone. The wine was gone. And Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now this is a crisis because it makes the groom who's supposed to have provided the wine, it makes him look stingy, that he doesn't care. It ruins the party because he's not organised enough wine for the celebration. What does Jesus do, though? Miraculously, he changed loads of water into wine. Verse 9, um, they put the water in the jars, uh, and it's, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's a lot of wine. How many jars is it? Nearby said stick six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing. Loads of water in there. Jesus says, fill them with water. And then he tells them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. It's hard to pinpoint the moment it happens, isn't it? But in verse 9, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. So what's Jesus doing? He's doing what the bridegroom should have done. He's providing, and failed to do, 
He's providing what he should have provided. How is it different? Well, in verse 10, there's not just a surprising quantity, there's a, it's a surprising quality as well, isn't it? The master of the banquet calls the bridegroom aside and says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. You bring out your Chateau Lafitte at the beginning and then at the end when no one cares is when you get out your, I don't know, your Forex or your Fosters. But you've got out the Chateau Lafitte, which is even better than the first one at the beginning. This is amazing. Jesus is generously being the best groom, isn't he? Instead of the groom, the bridegroom. And he's making his party the best party, the best celebration. So what is the glory of Jesus that helps us believe in this sign? Jesus is the greatest groom, glorious in generosity. What helps us with that? Well, look, here's one. Jesus is the husband God promised to his people. If I turn up at Isaiah 62.5, don't worry about turning that up. I'll, I'll read it out to you. This is a promise made at many, uh, what's it be, about 750 years before Jesus arrives. What am I doing? 62 uh, verse 5. Uh, uh, and the prophet Isaiah gave this promise uh, to God's people. Uh, and he said, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Do you get that? As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so God will rejoice over you, his people. That's what Ephesians 4 is about, isn't it? When we hear about marriage being a picture, of, uh, sorry, in Ephesians 5, when we hear about marriage being a picture of Jesus' relationship with his people. He's the bridegroom and we're his people. And he rejoices over us. So Jesus is glorious here in John 2 because he's shown to be that promised bridegroom who brings that delight of God over you and I as his people. And we see from the fact of the miracle that Jesus is clearly that God, isn't he? Because no one can turn wine, water into wine in that quantity to that quality without even really saying anything. No one can alter creation without even speaking apart from God. So from the nature of the miracle, saving the wedding party, Jesus is clearly the God who wants to delight over his people. Jesus is not just a man, but the promise-keeping God who delights over his people. The greatest groom, glorious in generosity. But here's another reason why he's glorious here. Do you see what he does with his credit for it? So Jesus gives his credit away to the undeserving. Jesus is being the bridegroom for this failed bridegroom. He is miraculously doing perfectly what the actual bridegroom failed to do. He didn't go to Tesco Express and get what he needed to. And though the bad bridegroom doesn't deserve it, he gets all the credit for Jesus' work. Do you see how the master of the banquet, he goes to the bridegroom. And he says, look, you're brilliant. You've brought out the choice wine. Isn't that cool? Jesus is just in the background saying nothing. He's letting the failure get all the credit for his glory. If I was Jesus and I heard the master of the banquet delighting over the bad by groom's party that I had just saved, well, would you be silent? I'd be hopping up and down. Hang on a minute. 
that was me. Or at least you'd be doing it in a dignified British way, wouldn't you? Which means you'd just be gently letting everyone know <laughs> that you poured the wine. Right, that's what you'd probably do. What I would do, I don't know what you would do. But Jesus doesn't deliver the deserved judgment on the bridegroom, does he? But he gives and makes up what he lacks, the best wedding gift. Jesus giving the bad bridegroom his perfect performance. Can you see how Jesus is the greatest groom, glorious in generosity? But here's another thing about his glory here. Uh, you know, we've got, what have we got there? We've got Jesus is the, this amazing uh, husband, God, to his promised people. Jesus gives his credit away to the undeserving, but also his glory is that Jesus is just gloriously, abundantly generous, isn't he? He doesn't just nip across to Tesco's and buy like a little couple of bottles from the corner shop. Jesus is not stingy. He's not mean, and he's not out to spoil our fun. He brings six, roughly 100 to 120 litres of wine, and it's the choice stuff, the best. Now, I struggle to imagine this, because when you go to a party and you're asked to bring a bottle, you bring, what, like this much? Maybe it's like half drunk. But, but when Jesus comes, what he does is he brings, he brings one of these. In fact, he doesn't bring one of those. He brings six of them. I did have six of them, but unfortunately, four of them got turned into a Ford. So we've only got two. <laughs> he, brings, he brings six of these to the wedding in a moment. He could have just done one. He could have done half. It could have just been average wine, couldn't it? That's not how God works, though, is it? Instead, he brings the, the absolute best quality. Oh, here it is. little shadow of the feet. No? Anyone? Okay, well, if you're a bit more, uh, every flavour of Fanta, maybe. <laughs> That's what it would be, wouldn't it? Or, or just like, I did, actually, when I did this with the kids originally, it was like the best sausage rolls you could possibly imagine. But he brings an abundant quality and quantity, doesn't he? Absolutely huge amounts. Jesus is generous in a surprising, miraculous quantity and quality. He's the greatest groom, glorious in generosity. But this is the thing, though, isn't it? Is you say, really, Ed? It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like that in my life. You know, I read this sign of him being gloriously generous and listening to his mind, and it just doesn't feel like he listens to me at all, actually. This sign's getting us ready for what is to come, though, isn't it? That's the key thing about verse 4. Look down what he says. They have no more, no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Why is that there? It's there to remind us that there's a time coming when Jesus will be killed in our place and he will suffer the wrath that we deserve. He will generously give all of him to us. That's way better than him turning up in your life and providing lovely wine. That's way better than him turning up in our life and providing almost anything because he's given us everything in him. The, the hour has not yet come yet for Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to heaven when the greatest groom's glorious generosity is revealed for all the world to see. A promise-keeping God whose delight for his people is so great that he goes to the cross for them. A promise-keeping God whose delight for his people is so great that he goes to the cross for them. 
Believing in Jesus' death, we get credit for Jesus' perfect life. He gets our punishment. On the cross, Jesus miraculously changes not water to wine, but our scarlet sin to purity, whiter than snow. On the cross, Jesus wins a life of shocking quantity and quality. Life to the full, for you and I, and forever. Can you see the glory of Jesus, the greatest groom, glorious in generosity? If that is the indicative in this passage then, that we should see this glory, then what do we do with it? What's the challenge for us? Okay, well here's what it's not. It is not a challenge to drink more wine. Quality and abundance of wine is a cultural way of celebration. Um, Note, even here, there is a too much, isn't there, implying that actually you've gone beyond it. So this is not a command or an indication that we should be drinking loads of wine. Jesus is a long way from that in this story, isn't he? He is clear-minded, he's sober about what's going on, and he is gloriously generous. Let's be the same. And neither does this sign say life is about having a party. The atheist uh, says, Isaiah 22, verse uh, 13, says, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And often I've heard this passage used almost in the same breath as that. But Christians don't need drunken parties to distract us from the future and death or even the present pain, because our future is the greatest wedding party with the greatest groom, glorious in generosity, And we are looking forward to that. That is what I want to be drunk on. The delight of what's to come. In a metaphorical sense. The challenge here is in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Will we believe in Jesus like the disciples? To believe that Jesus is our greatest groom. Gloriously generous. That's difficult to do, isn't it? When Jesus doesn't seem to deliver what we need or what we want, we're quick to think that Jesus is like the failed bridegroom here, that he's a bit stingy or disorganised or mean or disinterested or maybe doesn't care. He's ruining our fun or just inadequate to meet our needs. We're all waiting on Jesus to deliver the goods, aren't we, in some way? We're waiting uh, on Jesus to reveal or to help us maybe with, I don't know, clarity on job security or choices or what school or results will be like. Or some of us are waiting for Jesus to heal ourselves or those we love. Some of us are waiting on Jesus for a groom and a restored marriage or escape from a marriage. But whilst we wait in those situations, will we believe that he is gloriously generous and good? The danger is we forget that Jesus is the greatest groom, gloriously generous, and think he's mean, stingy, a fun spoiler, or inadequate, and so we let go of him. God does not promise that those things often that we want will happen, but he does promise us life to the full in Christ, now and for our wedding banquet in heaven forever. And God does not just ask us to believe and leave us on our own, 
We've got his word and each other and his Holy Spirit to remind each other all the time, young or old or middle-aged, Jesus is glorious in his generosity and his goodness. Here he is by his spirit reminding us in his word, by this sign, and most of all, reminding us in the cross that Jesus is the greatest groom, gloriously generous. That's one of the, chief, the Spirit's chief roles, is to illuminate Jesus to us from the Word so that we might see the cross and we might keep remembering that actually he's great. Uh, I, it's a lovely, I might cry at this point, I'm really sorry. Sometimes when you tell the stories about people you love, it's a little bit edgy, isn't it? So just bear with me. So Olga is an Afro-Caribbean uh, British lady in, who was my last church. She once told me that when she told her neighbour that she was praying for something she was waiting for, her neighbour, I don't know what it was, it was a package or something like that, and her neighbour, who's not a Christian, was really worried that her prayer wouldn't be answered. You know, what if God doesn't deliver on your delivery? And Olga's response to me was, what we, you know, we've just got to keep remembering what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that he's good, and keep trusting Oh, that's it. That's it, Olga. You've got it. You might be waiting for God to deliver something. You might be worried that your prayer won't be answered, and maybe it won't. But what we've got to keep seeing is that Jesus is a gloriously generous, wonderful saviour. And personally, I'm most encouraged when I see you, and uh, people at Emmanuel and at Hope and across the parish, when I see you living this out, particularly people who are waiting on Jesus, but obviously believe by their choices that there's nothing more wonderful than Jesus. I'm thinking especially of those heroes of the faith who put Jesus first in your relationships. Maybe it's the gift of singleness, maybe it's those who would love to be married but are not, or would love to be married to someone else but you're still faithful. You know, as you wait on Jesus, you're showing you're in your obedience to him that you believe he's good. And his ways are good. Keep going. As you wait on Jesus to provide your relational needs, to provide a Christian spouse or to, to win your spouse in a difficult marriage uh, or to wake your church family up to love you as a proper family, you're living out for the rest of us what, that Jesus is the greatest groom who is gloriously generous. That you still choose to put Jesus first and still praise his name. Shouts in the clearest terms to my heart, Look, Jesus is the greatest groom, gloriously generous. Thank you for that daily reminder. Praise God for you and pray that you would keep living so that we would all live it, whatever we're waiting for. Someone nailed uh, a teaching uh, for this uh, a while back in a conversation. I asked what's encouraging about Emmanuel being the bride of Christ, because that's sort of a weird thing. It's Jesus, Ed, was the response. He's the best groom you could hope for. Jesus is better than you dreamed or you longed for. He satisfies all our desires with good things if we'll wait on him. Let's pray that we would believe that. Question for you to chat about out there is, what is making you think Jesus is stingy and mean at the moment? Maybe it's the chronic pain. Maybe it's the spouse who just wants nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with Jesus, sorry. Hopefully they want something to do with you. Let's talk about those things and then pray for belief in Jesus' generosity so that we would hang on to be there at that wedding feast that final day. Should we pray for that?
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who comes in this extraordinary way. Lord, I don't think there's a single civilization on this planet that has come up with a God who is so gentle, who is so generous, who is so glorious, Lord, that you would die for your people to be our, our, our bridegroom and to delight over us like we're your bride. I don't think there's a single civilization, Lord, that has imagined, that has dared to imagine such a God as you. You are wonderful in every way, and we praise you and we glorify you and pray that you would hold the cross before our eyes so that we might see that you are the best bridegroom, gloriously generous, and that we would delight in you even half as much as you delight in us. Amen.